Well, today I thought it would be very important for us to have a spiritual tune-up. And that may be a strange title for a sermon, but that's what I've called this one. And I want to get into a New Testament text that I think is helpful for just a well-rounded look at our lives right now so that we are strong in the Lord and that we are doing the kinds of spiritual disciplines that we ought to do and we ought to be engaged in to be the kinds of healthy Christians God would have us be. And so let us start with a word of prayer and then let's dive into a great passage in Colossians chapter 4. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for the chance that we have to study your word. As imperfect as it is through this video camera, we are grateful for technology that allows us to stay in touch, just like Paul was grateful for the pen and ink, the papyrus that he had to write on to send letters, even though he desperately longed to be face-to-face, as we do. God, we are thankful for what we have, and we want to be grateful for the chance that we have to be uh, connecting through this digital means, and I pray that the sermon would be a great help, would be an encouragement. These would be words of, of, of edification, and it would build us up, and that it would be the kind of thing that makes us uh, the kinds of Christians that are ready for the next chapter of this whole strange period of time that we've been living through. So, uh, God, minister to us through the preaching of your word here now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. No matter how great a car you might have, it needs a tune-up every now and then. And this is what we are going to do in a passage that, as Paul gets to the end of this book, he's giving us a summary of the kinds of things that ought to be first and foremost in the Christian's practice in life. So let's take a look at this. I want to look at verses 2 through 6 in Colossians chapter 4. So follow along as I read it for you. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It's translated this way in verse 2, continue steadfastly. That translates one word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What a great text. I hope even reading it is refreshing to hear those words. But let us start and we'll make, let's see how many observations here. Eight observations, another eight point sermon to try and help us think about how we can be in the right kind of spiritual state that we need to be in as we traverse together, I hope in unity as a church uh, through this last stage, we hope of this uh, shutdown, we can get back to some normal uh, Christian fellowship and some normal assembling together, even though there are steps involved in that as we all work toward doing what is right and what is best and what is prudent as we uh, transition. So uh, the first observation, very simple, from the beginning of verse number uh, two, the first part of it, I just put it this way, when it translates this phrase, continue steadfastly. Some translations say, would devote yourself to it. Uh, You could say, commit yourself to it, which I trust you're already committed to it. So I might want to say, recommit yourself to it. The way I jotted it down was this way. Number one in your outline, you need to double up on your prayers. There's nothing that's going to happen good and, and nothing that's going to be healthy in your Christian life if your prayer life is in the tank. You have to be someone who keeps this as a commitment at the top of your priority list to pray. And so I just want you to jot it down. I want you to think about your prayer life. I want you to consider it. Some of the questions that we're going to deal with in our small groups are all about that 
prayer life that you ought to be having, that we ought to engage ourselves in. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. John taught John's disciples to pray. Uh, and even in the end of three and a half years of ministry, the uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John struggled in the garden to stay awake and learn and to pray. And yet here is the call for us as he tells the Colossians and certainly us by extension, the Holy Spirit is saying to us to continue steadfastly in prayer. Double up on your prayers. And that's a way to talk about and to think about the commitment to prayer we ought to have. I'm going to say, I'm going to pray more this week. I'm going to increase my prayer time. I'm going to engage more in prayer. Let me give you three Quick subpoints here that might motivate you just a little bit. The first one comes from Psalm 86, verse 5. Psalm 86, verse 5. We think about prayer. We think about one of the main things I hope that all of us are just even convicted about when we address a holy God, when we say our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be the name, this great and awesome, holy and perfect and perfectly just God, is that we think about our need for forgiveness. And that is the promise in this passage. Psalm 86, 5, it says, O Lord, you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. I want you to think about that for a second. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. I mean, what an open invitation for us to remember that at the ground level of all of our spiritual health is us having and believing and relying on this confident assertion that God is a God who forgives. And we quote it all the time from 1 John, but he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we just confess our sins, we need to come to God in prayer confessing our sins. Not the sins of someone else, not the sins of you know, uh, some other person, but the sins of our own lives, the sins that we have in our hearts. Uh, we talked today, I talked to someone today about the difference between the sins that we commit by simply not doing what we're supposed to and the sins we commit by doing the things we're not supposed to do. We need to be thinking about our own lives and in our prayer lives saying, God, here's the great news. If I come in honest, sincere confession, you are God who forgives me. Now, I understand there's a categorical forgiveness at our justification. We become children of God, adopted into God's family. But just because you are an adopted forever son or daughter of the king doesn't mean that you don't need the ongoing forgiveness that comes within that relationship to make that relationship what it needs to be. So I want you to think about your life as you think about your prayer life and say, God, please search my heart, try me, know me, see if there's some things today I can come to you with that optimistic sense of confidence that you are a forgiving God. Let me read it again. Oh Lord, you're good and you're forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed, faithful covenant love. You made a promise. You're going to keep it to all who call upon you. So let me encourage you with this. God forgives, right? Let's double up on our prayer because God forgives and you and I are in need of that kind of forgiveness. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse seven. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse seven. I quote this one all the time, but when Moses thinks about how great they have it, having God on their side, even though they've had a lot of problems, right? And a lot of discipline and a lot of issues that God had to deal with in their lives. And certainly we are going to learn, even in this book of Deuteronomy, if you were to read the whole thing, that God is going to discipline Moses so severely that he can't even go into the promised land. And yet here's the great news. He says, for what great nation is there? This is Deuteronomy 4.7. That has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. 
Now, I, I want to motivate you with these simple phrases, right? God forgives. Let's double down on our prayers, right? God draws near. That's the sub point here, letter B, if you're taking notes that way. God draws near. You right now draw near to God. And how do we do that? In prayer. We reach out to God in prayer with sincere, heartfelt praying. And the Bible promises this, that He draws near to us. I mean, these people that bow down to their idols in ancient Mesopotamia, they don't have their gods near them the way our God is near us, the real God, the only God, the true God, whenever we call upon Him. So we need to know that the motivation in our prayer lives that should really fuel our desire and our commitment, our resolve to continue steadfastly in prayer, I'm going to say in part is for the great blessing of just knowing that God draws near to those who pray. And then lastly, which may have been the thing you thought of first, is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Matthew 7, 7, just a very familiar, simple reminder that Jesus himself says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Think of those three simple verses saying these three simple things. God forgives, God draws near, and God answers. He may not answer immediately, he may not answer the way we want. There may be a lot of, 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 of concern about God's wisdom and how he, in an inscrutable, in an inscrutable way, does the things that he does in response to our praying. But God is a God who's going to answer. He hears us. Even as Jesus goes on to motivate, there's not a dad that's going to, when a son asks for something good, like a piece of bread, is going to give him a stone. And, and the reality is that God is going to answer our prayers. And that's how we're to view it. We're to be beckon to pray because God is a forgiving God. I know that we've got problems in our lives and between you and God you should feel guilt because we're guilty and yet that guilt can be relieved immediately by just remembering that when we pray God forgives. When we pray He draws near. It strengthens our relationship. When we pray He answers. I mean that ought to be enough I would hope just biblically we could go on but I got eight points to get through just to simply say you and I ought to be people committed to prayer in the words of our English text back here in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 we ought to be steadfast and continue steadfast continue steadfastly in our prayers look at the next phrase here in verse number 2 it says that we ought to continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John into the garden, he told them to watch and pray. Those things go together all the time. The idea of a vigilance and a care and a protection of our own hearts and our minds and our lives when we're going into prayer. We've got to be alert. We've got to be careful. We've got to be sober. And I just want to remind you that when you think about your spiritual health, one of the most important things you ought to think about is what a spiritual battle this is. So let's state it that way and unpack this a little bit. Number two, you need to understand your spiritual battle. Even in your praying, right? There's going to be an opposition spiritually to your praying. We're not wrestling ultimately against people that don't like the biblical truth that we're presenting to the world. Ultimately, there's a spiritual force behind that, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against these spiritual forces of darkness, this evil and wickedness that is behind all that goes on in our culture as people are held captive by the enemy to do his will in this world and even in our lives and in our church and sometimes under our same roof in our home. We need to know there's a spiritual battle going on. Let me give you a few passages in this regard, maybe more than we have time for, but let me just throw them out quickly. First one would be Luke chapter 22, verse 31. When I thought about the fact that I need to stay alert in my praying, I couldn't help but think of this passage where Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, which is an interesting way to put it. He wants, he wants you. Now, when I say you and I point at you, I mean He's looking at the whole team of disciples. This is the uh, 
second person pronoun in the plural, you, you all. And, and I think by extension, and that's helpful for us because he's going to turn around and talk about what he's done in the case of Peter and praying for him. But that particular statement about he's demanded to have you all, and the next phrase, to sift you all like wheat, that concept of us seeing ourselves in that sobering concern that we've got an enemy should be the thing that reminds us how important it is that we are men and women of prayer. And I would say, and I went on to say this, I guess, before I should, but in verse 32 it says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Uh, Jesus here is saying, I'm praying. I'm asking God for you and on your behalf, but I'm telling you that you've got an enemy and that enemy is wanting to sift you like weed. And I often say when I read that passage, I'm not sure what exactly that means, but it doesn't sound good and you don't want it. And we need to recognize that the things that Satan would like to do to our lives is to really dismantle every good step of spiritual progress and all of your spiritual health. He'd like to make you spiritually sick and on your spiritual deathbed. But here it is, Jesus saying, here's the answer, prayer. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying for you. And by the way, when we think about our prayer life, we ought to think that way, that God himself has said, you ask me and, and Christ himself will intercede. I said I got a lot of passages here, but let me have you write this one down. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. It, it says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Well, we know the answer to that. That's a rhetorical question. Well, a lot of people can, but behind the people are the spiritual forces in this world. Satan's going to bring a charge against us. That's his name. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the diabolos, the, the one who is against us, the slanderer, Satan, uh, diabolos, the slanderer, and Satan, the adversary. He's against us. Well, who's going to bring that charge? Well, he reminds us we got someone bigger. God is the one who justifies. He's the one who can say that we're right before him. Who is there to condemn verse 34 right who's going to do that well christ jesus is the one who has died and more than that he was raised and now he's at the right hand of god and indeed he is interceding for us that means he's praying for us right and interceding gives us that picture not just of jesus praying but it's much like if peter would have said wow satan wants to sift me like wheat he wants to have me he wants to grab me and and, and put me down well then here's the thing i will pray and Christ will intercede. It's as though we can look at it that way because had Peter started praying for his own spiritual health or his own spiritual life or his own spiritual progress, here's the promise of the Christian life. Satan is going to be confronted not just with our requests, right? Satan is going to really be confronted with Christ being our advocate and our intercessor before the Father, the Almighty One, and here's the, 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 the great comfort I should have in recognizing that prayer is the answer uh, to that spiritual battle that I face. Matter of fact, as long as we're in Romans chapter 8, if you've got that passage up, look back up a few verses in verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is Romans 8, 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, and we can underscore that. I was in my prayer time this morning thinking, I don't even know how to pray today about the things that I was facing, but I, I know this, that in my weakness in praying, here's the good news, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now that's the theme in the passage about the groanings of the world, wants to th see things made right, and of us in the Spirit within us, we want to see our lives done with the sinful culture and world and the sinful flesh that we have. And now we see the Spirit's got the same kind of ardent concern 
concern about seeing the good in our lives happen the way that God would want it to happen. And he's groaning in intercession for us. Even when we're praying for the wrong things, he's passionately and ardently praying for the right things. And that's such an encouragement to me to, to pray in the midst of the spiritual battle because I've got God, the recipient, hearing my prayers. Right? He wants to forgive. He wants to draw near. He wants to answer my prayers. And then I've got Christ being my advocate. And much like Peter, he can say, I'm praying for you, Mike Fabares. I'm praying as your uh, advocate and intercessor. And then the Spirit himself saying, well, if you're praying for the wrong things, I'm correcting those things and praying for the right things. I'm interceding because your weakness, you don't even know what you should be praying for. But see, the whole prompting of this is to understand the battle that we have and to get before God and to pray. And that's the picture I'm trying to present to us in the passage uh, in Colossians chapter 4, that we ought to be the kinds of people that are giving ourselves steadfastly to prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Sorry, I missed that text here. Okay, I mean, I've lost it, but now I've got it back. Um, can I give you one more here as long as we're dealing with this topic? I gave you Luke 22, 31, but let me now give you 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be sober-minded. It's the same picture here of being uh, alert in our praying. Right? We need to be careful about uh, our prayers. We ought to be alert. We ought to be cautious. We ought to be the kinds of uh, vigilant people that are watchful in our praying and alert. Why? Because there's a battle going on. It says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I can't get away from the truth of the fact that so many Christians don't engage in the kinds of activities and disciplines that would make them spiritually healthy, and therefore they are in desperate need of a spiritual tune-up, but they're not doing it, and they're not praying, in part because they don't know the spiritual battle that they're involved in, and they kind of hope that the Christian life is one that doesn't have that sense of struggle. Uh, I was reminded of that passage this week about the uh, kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And the context is about Jesus commenting on John the Baptist. I mean, this really rugged figure who's out there fighting the battle for truth and repentance among people that were mocking him and maligning him. And here's Jesus coming with a different approach to ministry. And they say, you're condemning him. You condemned me. And the whole point of the advancement of the kingdom and the health of the soldiers within the kingdom really is something that it's hard fought. It's a battle. It's like the, the church that's expanding, that the church is established, is going to be built by Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's this constant struggle. And if you don't vision, envision the Christian life that way, even in your own personal quest for sanctification or in your advancement of your ministry or service in the church, well, then you've got the wrong perspective on the Christian life and you're, pro you're probably not good at praying, your prayer life probably in the tank, and you don't bring the right mindset into the kinds of spiritual disciplines that I'm here to talk about today that we all ought to be engaged in. Because maybe we don't think about the devil as a prowling lion seeking someone to devour, is watching a little something that talked about it was a situation of the men being uh, in this village being chased and hunted by these animals, which is a perfect picture of this that you know sends a chill up your spine to put yourself in the shoes of those people thinking, wow, you've got a predator that is after you and this wild animal wants to tear you apart for lunch. And to think that way about our Christian life may not be comfortable, but it's accurate. Prayer is our defense, obviously. When Jesus says he's praying for Peter, 
we can have that experience right now by you getting on your knees and talking to God today about your forgiveness, about Him drawing near, about the things that are on the agenda for your life, things that are on our agenda as Christians and in our church and in our culture. Those are the kinds of things that God is ready to get involved in. But you've got to understand the spiritual battle. All right, we're still in verse 2, believe it or not. But Colossians chapter 4, bottom of verse number 2 says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Here's the whole verse. Continue steadfastly in prayer, point 1. Being watchful in it, point 2. With thanksgiving, point 3. Uh, let me just say this, as far as spiritual tune-up, here's the thing you need, like going to the doctor. Someone told me today they went to the doctor and the doctor said do this, this, and this. Here's what the doctor says about your spiritual life. You need to be more thankful. You're not thankful enough. You're not thankful the way you ought to. We ought to give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5. And in this passage it says, even when I think about the battle, and I'm watchful and alert in my praying, and when I'm thinking about continuing steadfastly with that kind of resolve and diligence in my prayer life, I need to be peppering that, that, that prayer life with thanksgiving. I'm going to call you right now to be more thankful than you are. Colossians chapter 4 is what we're in, but I want you to turn back to Colossians chapter 1. Here's some things you should be thankful for and be thankful for right now, assuming that you are a Christian, you put your trust in Christ, you've turned from sin, that life of independence from God, and all the things you did just because you wanted to do them, to put your confidence in Christ's cross of forgiveness that he died there and absorbed the penalty of sin, and now you're going to follow him. If that's the case, then these things are true of you. And these are the things that fuel your Thanksgiving list, at least as the fundamental things you ought to be thankful for, every single day. Are you ready? Verse 12, Colossians 1.12. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. My question is, are you qualified? for the inheritance of the saints in light, which is a poetic way to talk about the fact that all the good, the unmitigated goodness of God is going to be given to you. Are you qualified? And in this text it says you are. You're fully qualified. He has qualified you to share in that. That's not what the people on your block think. They think that if they do good enough, then they might get to heaven and they're hoping to because they're better than the next guy. Here is the thing you're thankful for, that you have a complete qualification. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life from the moment of your trust in Christ. In the timeline that we experience, right, we can say at that moment we were fully qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. You used to be characterized as a part of this world, the world system, driven by the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, to quote Ephesians 2. And now the Bible says He's delivered you from that domain of darkness and He's transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. From the very moment of your forgiveness, think about this, you are now an, an adopted child of God. Think about that, right? The, the, the lostness of being separated from God, of not having forgiveness from God, of having no hope of standing before God on Judgment Day and being accepted completely. Well, now you are, and you're a part of that. You are an adopted child of God. It's like being in the orphanage that's doomed for destruction and having here this, this, this great parent come and take you out of that whole mess. That's the picture of redemption. That's the usage of the word in the Bible, being purchased out of that doomed situation. That's why I always like that example of getting off of a sinking ship. You, you've been delivered. You may be bobbing around in a lifeboat right now and it didn't feel like you're on the winning team, but we're headed to the kingdom and you've been taken off. You've been transferred out of that losing department, that losing category. And then lastly, verse 14 Another thing to be thankful for here, in whom we have redemption, there's our picture that I've just talked about here, the forgiveness of sins. To think that every sin that you've ever committed 
has been completely paid for, fully paid for on the cross, is absolutely mind-boggling concept. And you want something to be thankful for today? Well, here it is, fully qualified. There's an inheritance that's laid up for you. You're no longer part of the system of the world and the lostness that you were before being meant to and, and, and destined for, if you will, the destruction that comes to those who sin. No longer you're part of that. You're part of now this new category, this new relationship with God where there's complete deliverance from the consequences of sin and complete forgiveness of the sins that you've committed. Psalm 103, the sins that you've committed have been, have, have been removed from you as far as the East is from the West. There's a lot to be thankful for. Those are the eternal realities. If you're taking sub-points, you've already written things down at this point, but to be more thankful, I want you to be more thankful for eternal realities. And that's the passage, Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. Now, our prayer life should probably be more filled with thanksgiving, not just for the eternal realities, which of course ought to be the foundational number one thing we're thankful for, but also for the temporal blessings. So jot that down. Be thankful for the temporal blessings. You're not thankful enough. I can probably safely say that about every single person listening to my words right now. You're probably not even close to being thankful enough as you should be for the temporal blessings of life. So turn to this one real quick. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says in this passage, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy, or it is set apart. It's made a good thing, right, categorically, by the word of God, that is, if it's allowed and it's a good thing in Scripture, and by prayer. Well, what kind of prayer? Well, it's thanksgiving, right? Receive it with thanksgiving. Matter of fact, look at the context here, starting in verse number 1 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. There's people that are utilizing doctrine, it's false doctrine, but saying you shouldn't be involved in all these things. Like you should, if you're going to be holy, well, you won't engage in marriage, right? You won't have that kind of, of thing in your life, verse 3. And, you know, there's certain foods you can't eat. And then it says, well, those things were created by God to be received, there it is in verse 3, with thanksgiving. For who? For those who believe and know the truth. I think of this passage all the time. The good things in life that even the common grace of God allows for the non-Christian, those are really created for those who believe and know the truth. And so you ought to receive those things. If they're good, right, because they're made good, they're defined as good, they're made holy by the Word of God, it's defined as good in the, in the Word of God, and by your prayer. Prayer what? By the thanksgiving that you receive, that you give, and that God receives. And as you receive those things, you receive them with thanksgiving. The temporal blessings of life you ought to be more thankful for. And by the way, as long as we're in 1 Timothy, we're close to this one. I want you to turn to the end of the book, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just want to say this because most of us spend more time thanking God for temporal blessings than eternal realities. And I want to tell you, we ought to be more thankful for eternal realities and never get sidetracked by how important the temporal blessings are to us because all those temporal blessings can go away. They can go away in a snap of a finger, man. They're gone. And so we know that we don't put our confidence in those. And though we're thankful for everything we get, even if it's a good meal tonight, right? I mean, you could be eating out of a tube by tomorrow. Uh, we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we're grateful for everything, and you ought to be. But I don't want it to overtake the fact that the eternal realities are so much more important. And a passage that will help us in this regard, keeping them all in perspective, is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 17, 17 through 19. 
verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, and that's us because we got everything. I mean, you ate three squares today, probably a lot more calories than you needed. You got snacks in the cupboard, you got a refrigerator full of bottled water. I mean, you got so many good things. You've got all that you needed in your closets, more clothes than you could ever wear this month. You got more shoes than anyone could ever really need in probably the rest of your life. You, you got everything you need. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, Timothy is told by Paul, not to be haughty. Don't be proud because you got all this stuff. Nor to, here's the thing, set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us, and we saw this in chapter 4, with everything to enjoy. It is for you to enjoy. If you enjoy it with thanksgiving, verse 18, they're to do good, they're to be rich in good works. That's the riches that really matter, because that has eternal consequences. And to be generous and ready to share with the things that God has given you. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. We're not talking about this life, talking about the next one. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Think about that. My life really is bound up in something beyond the horizon of this life. I preach this all the time. I preached it a lot during this COVID shutdown. I want you to remember that. That's where real life is. And those are the things I'm thankful for ultimately thankful. I'm thankful for everything, and I should be. I'm not as thankful as I should be either. I'm preaching this sermon to myself. I should be more thankful, but I should be ultimately thankful for the things that can't be taken away. Jesus said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Why? Because moths can't eat it up, and rust can't corrode it, and thieves can't break in and steal it. Break in and steal it. That is the eternal things, the inheritance that's stored up for me in that place as I continue to live for the Lord, it'll be added to. I mean, the treasure and the riches and the good and the pleasures that are involved in that will only be increased. So I hold the things of this world loosely, although I'm already making the point we should be thankful for all of those things. But real life is the thing I'm looking forward to and the things that I can celebrate now is the eternal reality. So that's what I want. And I, let me add this, as long as I'm talking about thankfulness, some of you cannot be thankful for the things that you have the way you ought to. There's a spiritual tune-up now. Prayer. Spiritual battle, understanding that, and now being super thankful in your life. One of the reasons that some of you aren't thankful like you ought to be, and you know who I'm talking to right now, it's because you're so busy thinking about the things you don't have, right? You're thinking about the things you don't have. Matter of fact, you opine, or not opine, you pine away, and you, you feel bad because you're looking across the street at what someone else has, and you don't have that, and so you get frustrated, and you're not thankful for things you do have. And that's the problem. You've got to replace that feeling. And here's some biblical words, and they're all sin, right? Envy, uh, coveting, covetousness, greed. Those are things that cannot characterize my heart because when they take place in my life, I can't be thankful for what I have. Just jot it down for the sake of completeness. I won't take time to turn you there, but Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it's the 10th commandment that came off the mountain. Think about this on a stone tablet. It was so important that God jotted it down with his own finger, as the Bible says. This miraculous inscription of a command because it's critically important that it does not take hold in your heart and it's a secret sin that could be going on right now and the only way I really know if you had it is if I could really monitor how much thanksgiving's coming out of your life because you cannot be a thankful Christian in your prayer life and in your heart if there's this, if there's coveting. Don't covet your neighbor's house, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet your neighbor's male servants or female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So I just add this, you can't be more thankful, just pastorally trying to help you here. You're never going to be thankful. And we're not going to be the kind of Christian we need to be if we're envious, if we are jealous, if we are covetous in our heart. Coveting is having that focus on what I don't have. And so I'm calling you to be thankful. 
and stop and be thankful for what you do have. There's a lot of stuff you don't have that you may want, that your flesh desperately wants, and that may be rightful good things for you to have, and God may give them to you down the road. Keep on asking. That's great. But you need to be thankful for the things that God has supplied, and know what He's supplied. Even if He's taken every temporal blessing away, He's provided you with these eternal realities that we talked about in Colossians chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6. All right, back to our text. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Let me read it again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, point one. Being watchful in it, right? Point two, spiritual battle. And do it with thanksgiving. Be more thankful. Okay, verse 4. I'm sorry. Point 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Let's deal with the first half of verse 3. And think about that as though we've just shifted our point of view, our POV as I call it, shifted in my mind homiletically the point of view from saying, okay, Paul's asking that the Colossians will do these things. We saw three things there, you know, prayer, alertness, the watchfulness, and the thanksgiving. Now he's saying pray for these things. Now I know that's an extension of, of our prayer lives. And I could preach about that. I could talk about you ought to be praying for the ministry of people around you. You ought to be praying for the ministry of your pastors and your leaders and missionaries in this world. But let's flip that over and say, well, that's a good thing and we all should be engaged in these things anyway. And Paul sets an example for us to follow. And he says, this is the pattern of my life. It ought to be the pattern of yours and imitate me as I imitate Christ. And all of this is true of all Christians that we ought to be doing what he's saying here. So let's shift the POV and say, okay, well, here's the point. For me, I want to be that, okay? I want to be that kind of person who sees doors open for the word. And if I'm praying for those things, guess what? I'll be able to see them and I'll recognize them. So number four on your outline, verse three, first half of verse three, jot it down like this. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. You want to be spiritually tuned up? Got the car, in the shop, in the garage. Let's tune it up. Check the tires, change the oil, change the filters. Right. What we're doing on your spiritual life in this very simple sermon is trying to show you these are the things that need to be in place. And guess what? We can send you out of the garage and that engine will hum and it'll be in tip-top shape. Well, one of the things going to have to be there is evangelism. And it's going to start with this, praying, you praying, for opportunities to share the gospel. Some people just can't thrive in the Christian life because they don't even think about this. They think evangelism is for someone else. And so here's what I'm saying. Just start praying right now for open doors for the Word of God. This is the thing that we ought to be resolved to be known for. Matter of fact, jot this one down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And the good thing about the video, I don't know if you're watching who you're watching this with, hopefully with a group, but, um, and I've already given you plenty of time, but you can pause and get to this passage. It's worth looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And of course, he talked about a lot of things even in this letter. And I'm sure he preached about a lot of things. Matter of fact, we see in the letter that he refers back to things that he said. So this is a hyperbolous statement that is speaking of the thing that he's known for. And all I'm saying is I want to make sure you're known for this. That you're known for the redemptive work of Christ. The message of the fact that Christ died for us. That you are about the gospel. I don't want to be known for being famous for any other thing as it relates to what I'm talking about or what I'm doing, then the fact that I'm talking about Christ. And I don't mean that just because I'm a preacher. I'm saying that you and your relationships, oh, you're, okay, you're an architect, you're a plumber, you're a mom, whatever you are, those things, of course, define the stuff that you do all the time. But are you known for that message? Don't let any other message, any other cause, any other campaign 
outstrip this one, and that is that you're known for the fact that you want people to be saved. Be known for that one message. And the way Paul says it, man, it couldn't be better. I, I wanted to know, I decided, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now notice this, that's not easy because he's just kind of one of those guys that wants to be controversial. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now he goes on to talk more about what happened when he was there, and that's great, but the point is he's revealing and confessing that he's fearful, that he's trembling. He's sharing the gospel and his palms are sweaty. And that is what you just need to get used to. When I say pray for opportunities to share the gospel, you may gulp and you may shallow breathe a little bit and you may think, well, that's a scary thing, particularly if God answers that today or tomorrow or, or, or the day after tomorrow. You're right. That'll be a scary thing for you to talk about Christ. But I want you to know that's what you ought to be praying for. We are always known for this one message of the gospel. That's the thing we're known for, even if it's a scary thing, to pray for those opportunities. And that is the simple point here, because in the end, nothing else really matters. I want to read this verse to you, Acts 4, if you're taking notes, verses 11 and 12, just to remind you where we were before this hiatus. We were in this chapter where we have Peter saying to the powers that be, here's this quote-unquote uneducated fisherman who's standing before the powers of his day, and he's willing to say this, this Jesus was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, you were the builders, right, the leaders, which has become the cornerstone. He's the ultimate leader. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To put this in context, I want people to know that that's your thing. That's your platform. That's the thing you care about the most. I want you to say, that's the resolve that I have. And God, I want you to give me opportunities to say that very thing, that people may reject it. People may not be interested in Christianity. By and large, the cultural may culture may dismiss it. We may be continually, continually and increasingly and progressively secularized. But when it comes to my life, when it comes to who I am, if I'm at the park talking to some other moms, if I'm at the gym, if I'm dealing with something in, in some sports league I'm in, if I'm you know on the golf course and paired up with someone, I'm going to be talking about eventually, I'm going to get around to the point that we're talking about the fact that my life is all about Christ and Him crucified. And that's the message that's most important. And though the world rejects it, there's no salvation in anyone else. There's no other name. There's no other way to be saved. This is the thing. And we all, not should be, could be, we must be saved. That, 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 that is the focus and should be the focus even of our praying. So we're going to be more thankful in our praying. We ought to see the spiritual battle. We ought to be praying and we ought to be praying for opportunities to share the gospel. All right, back to our text here. Colossians chapter 3. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. There's one last line here I don't want you to miss. And that is this. He says, on account of which I am in prison. We started this hiatus, I, I think one of the first messages I preached on video when we started through this weird time was um, Philippians, right? Philippians 4, I think it was. And I talked about prayer in that sermon, but I mentioned that this was a uh, prison epistle. Well, here's another prison epistle. He's in prison, and he's in prison because he shares the gospel, because he wants to be known for getting people right with God. And he just mentions that, and I just want to take very simply from that observation that we need to be prepared for opposition. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but when we think about the spiritual battle, 
got a ton to be thankful for. We think about the fact that, God, I want you to open up doors for me to tell this message to other people. I just want us to be braced for opposition. Turn to this text with me really, really quick. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. The reason we don't want to share the gospel, the reason we don't even want to pray for opportunities, the reason our Christian life is not humming along as it ought to healthily with the kind of spiritual vitality we ought to have, Perhaps because we're not sharing the gospel, and we're not sharing the gospel because we're afraid and we're ashamed. And Paul addresses this to a pastor, of all people, in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. This is 2 Timothy. Is that what I said? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be afraid of standing with me, the guy who you know, is known for sharing the gospel. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, right? Not just as being saved people, but as messengers and ambassadors of this message. And he saved us not because of our works, because we've, uh, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. And the purpose, of course, was for us to be saved to the glory of his grace, but also as messengers of the message of this grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, think about this, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This again, just the motivation, the power of this open door. And it's great, even though it may cost us, we're giving life, we're holding out life to people, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is, underline this, which is why I suffer as I do. One of the basic reactions of our lives is not wanting to suffer, and we often position and arrange our lives so that we don't. And he says, but I'm committed to this. And because I'm committed to this, I'm ready for the opposition, and I'm ready to suffer, even if that's what I have to do. Be rejected, be ridiculed, be mocked. I'm okay with that, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. That's how it started in verse 8. You don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I've believed. He's convinced of it. And you're only going to know that God if you're drawing near to him all the time in Bible study and prayer. I know whom I, I know who, whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And there's two ways to read that if you look at the footnote there in the ESV, because it's a bit ambiguous as to the grammar of exactly what this is talking about. Are we talking about your life entrusted to God or what he entrusted to me? Either way, it works and it's biblical. Right? Whichever way was intended here, both of them are true biblical statements we can see from the rest of Scripture. We entrust our lives to God, and we know that God is faithful when we entrust our lives to Him. As he says in John 10, this flock, this entrustment of people, He's the good shepherd. He's going to lay down His life for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to be the door, and He's going to be the access to our lives. No one's going to get past Him. As he prays in John 17, right? This is the flock you gave me. I haven't lost any of them except the son of perdition to fulfill the scriptures. So I, I, I keep the people that, you, that the father gives to the son. So I know that my life, as I've entrusted it to God, that's a good entrustment. It's a good thing. God's going to safeguard it. Or if I think about the gospel, he's going to guard this gospel. He's given it to me. I dare not pervert it. And I need to give it to the world. Nevertheless, this is about being ashamed. It's about people that are not ready for opposition. It's about people that are afraid of being opposed. And so many people pander to so many things in our culture because they don't want to be out of step with the culture. They talk about being on the right side of history. I've been thinking about preaching just a sermon series on that. Now, you want to talk about the right side of history. Here's the right side of history for people to bow to Christ and get their sins right and, and forgiven and, and obliterated and expiated because God has forgiven them through Christ, that's the right side of history. And standing up for him in our culture is getting on the right side of history. All right, I don't want to belabor that. I'm running out of time. 
number 6, verse 4, back to our text, Colossians chapter 4, verse number 4. He says, I want you to pray that that door can be opened. For what purpose? Well, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Let me add this little thing about uh, this little tune-up checklist that you need to make sure you have in your life. Number six, make sure you know the gospel. I, uh, you know, I've preached this for a long time about the, the 2 a.m. test. I ought to be able to come into your room at 2 a.m., wake you up and say, give me the gospel. What is it? The 2 a.m. test. That is something you ought to have so clear in your mind. You ought to be able to make it clear. You ought to know how to speak about the message of forgiveness. So this is critical. And I would start with just the simple idea, just to kind of put aside one of the most uh, misunderstood aspects of our vocabulary, is that people talk about being saved. And I've given you these stats before, but these missionaries, uh, potential missionaries or training to be missionaries are asked, what are you saved from? And I don't have all the, the, the report in front of me, but they, the, all the ridiculous things that they said, just kind of reflexively saying, well, oh, saved, you're saved from loneliness, you're saved from, you know, purposelessness, you're saved from all that. Here's the thing you're saved from. I mean, let's just look at what the Bible has to say. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. I guess I can start in verse 9. You know what kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to do what? Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, that's his son, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. He saves us from the wrath that is to come. When we talk about the message we're giving to people. Nothing could be more sobering and difficult to share. That's why Christianity today is so watered down and so anemic. People sharing a message is not even the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is we're in trouble with God and we need to be made right with God. That's why this bridge illustration that you know, I used to have taught to me and, and, and people say, well, that's what we want to get. We're here. We're alienated from God. The cross is across this chasm and I want to get to the other side. It doesn't have the weight or the force of the real problem that my sins are bringing God's judgment and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and it's coming like the flood upon Noah's day. I need to be saved. And that's why I replaced that whole thing in our partner's manual with the umbrella illustration because that's more like what we need to feel and sense as we're sharing this with other people. It's going to start raining. It's going to rain fire, not water. It's going to be punishment for sin, but you can be in a place where the punishment of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God has already been. It's under the shadow of the cross. And so the idea, the urgency of that, I think just helps kind of sort this whole message out. You want to know the message of the gospel? Let's start with this. We're saved from what? We're saved from standing before the judge without an advocate. We're saved, you know, before the, the condemner, the executioner saying, well, you're to be cast out into outer darkness because you deserve to be there. But having instead to be saved from that consequence, to have Christ be our advocate and say, I paid the, the price in full. Anyway, I could say so much more. The problem is sin. The solution is Christ. And I would say, perhaps, you know, I'm about to wrap up, well, I just did wrap up the Second Peter videos. If, if you're really into these things we've been putting out, over 300 videos during this uh, shutdown, uh, a lot of them, uh, 65 of them or whatever it was, uh, were the Second Peter studies. And I know people already starting to write, say, are we going to keep going or go to another book? Listen, here's something I'd like you to replace that time with if you were doing that 15 minutes a day with me. How about you go through the Partners Program? Oh, I've been through that. I went through that a couple of years. Then take someone through the partners program. This, if there's one thing that's going to help you define what the gospel is, even in the first chapter when it's turned to you and says, how do you know you're right with God? Are you sure you're right with God? 
It's going to help you learn the components of the gospel in such a clear way that by chapter 10, right, chapter 9 specifically, we deal with how to share that with other people. I could wake you up at 2 in the morning, roll you out of bed, and you can say, here is the message of the gospel. Be saved from the wrath that is to come. Here's how. Here's how, why you think this way. This is why we, how we define things. This is what faith is. This is what repentance is. Time for us to make sure we know the gospel. Number 7, verse 5. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Okay, you're ready. You're praying for opportunities. You know the gospel. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So the word walk, I talk about this a lot, that Paul loved that phrase, peripateo. It's living your life in front of people. Uh, or living your life is what walking is all about, peripateo, that Greek word, the idea of just I'm the course and manner of my life. And it says, make sure you're walking wisely. You're doing the right kind of wise thing and you're thinking about how you're interacting with these non-Christians, making the best use of your time because we only have so much of it and make sure that you're making good use of it, that you're taking every opportunity that you can. This is the word kairos, not chronos. We talk about this if you've heard me preach on the word time before two Greek words, different Greek words with two different senses translate into that word time. Chronos, we talk about a chronograph, the old chronograph, that's the, the ticking of the clock, the movement of time, day by day, hour by hour, week by week. The kairos are opportunities. Here's an open door. So we're back to the idea of opportunity. Here's an open door. Here, make the best of every open door you have. And it says, so walk and live and position your life in such a way as you're doing it wisely. I put it this way, number seven. You want a spiritual tune-up, you get your life in, in, in line, you, you're praying, you're being thankful, you're recognizing things biblically as you're moving forward in your life in terms of what's eternally important. You're going through all of these things that we've been talking about. I'm saying you better be, number seven, strategically connecting with non-Christians. I put it this way, strategically connect with non-Christians. Okay, Not as a, I, wanna, I, I want my best friends to be non-Christians. I was asked that this week, you know, is it okay to have my best friends be non-Christians? Well, the answer is no. Really, as a Christian, the answer is no. And I didn't say it so tersely to the person, but the answer is no. My best friends are going to be Christians who share that sense of the Lordship of Christ. But in Ephesians chapter 5, it says my relationship with non-Christians needs to exist. I need to make the most of the opportunity in these evil days, recognizing that I have a message to say to them. And he quotes Isaiah, he says, wake up, O sleeper, right? Uh, arise from the dead. And he adds, let Christ shine on you. And the point is, I have a message of redeeming people. And what was it, Luke 13, when Jesus is encountering Zacchaeus, this, I mean, really sellout. He's the, the lowest rung of the social order, Zacchaeus. And he says, I'm going to dine with you today. Well, what are you doing? Well, that's what we learned in Luke 15. The Pharisees were so mad that Jesus spent all this time with sinners and tax collectors. Well, the reason he did is because he came to call the unrighteous to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. He repeated that throughout his ministry. That was his point. So the Pharisees who thought they were seeing, as John 9 says, they thought they were righteous, right? Well, no one's righteous, no, not one, but they thought that, and so they weren't even open to the message of repentance. So Jesus says, fine then, I'm going to those who can see the problem. So he eats with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus reaches the place of repentance. Well, he's got to have that interaction, and he purposefully, strategically says, let's have lunch, let's have dinner. And in the midst of that, of course, he shines the gospel on him, so to speak. And Zacchaeus comes to the place of repentance. So I'm saying you need to strategically connect with non-Christians. And some of you aren't doing that. You say, well, that's not the way my life functions. My life functions around the church. Let me give you a few things. Number one, we started a brand new ministry called 
Compass Active, you've heard about that, right? Um, every Saturday, even through the you know end of this shutdown, we're getting together, and the whole point of that is to get together with non-Christians in these contexts of uh, doing these physical activities, which is a great bridge that non-Christians are interested in walking and running and jogging and biking and all the things that we do in this. This is a great time to strategically say, I'm coming to be with non-Christians. And we'd love for you to bring a couple with you when you come to Compass Active events. But if you don't, there's other people bringing non-Christians there. At least there is a context for you to have that relationship. Or in the women's ministry, Navigating Motherhood. Going to start that up again soon. Right? Here is a ministry. We go out into the communities, into the malls, into the parks. We invite non-Christians into our lives and we strategically connect with them. And we have breakfast with them. And we teach them things that are very practical. But we build those relationships for the sake of the gospel. Women in Faith, another ministry you can be a part of that is all about reaching non-Christians. Now, if we can do it personally and non-scheduled and non-relational, non-programmatically, that's great. But we have some things in our program lineup, and we're excited about this new area of our ministry called Compass Active, where we are purposefully, strategically connecting with non-Christians. Now, you shouldn't need a program like that necessarily, but sometimes our lives, we need something where we can have a context to do that work, and it should all be purposeful. I was quoting... Um, I said Luke 13, but it was Luke 19. Luke 19 is the, is the Zacchaeus story. Ephesians chapter 5 was the passage I was quoting, verses 5 through 16, about connecting with non-Christians for a strategic purpose. All right, we're out of time. Last but not least, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Right? That means it's not that acidic. It's not, it's not distasteful. It doesn't burn, Right? so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So that means you're not agreeing, and you've got to give an answer, and there's a disagreement. I get that. The gospel is going to divide. It's going to polarize. It's going to be a problem. When you start saying there's a sin problem in your life, you need to repent. But here's the thing. I put it this way. Number eight, you need to be nice and strongly defend the gospel. Be nice and strongly defend the gospel. Hopefully you've seen that modeled by some folks that you admire in your ministries or you know, you've read about in church history. They, they can be kind. They're, they're, they're gentle. They love people, but they're just, they're tenacious about defending the gospel. Uh, so many passages I'd love to have you look at, but let me just give you a couple to jot down. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, if you're quick to get there, it might be worth looking at. It says here, Paul went to Athens, I'm sorry, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila and a uh, who was a native of Pontus, recently come from uh, Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay. He went to see them because he was of the same trade. They were tent makers. And he stayed with them and they worked. And they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. If I don't see that that's the whole point. Weapons of warfare, right hand and left, not of the world, not fleshly, but for destroying strongholds, tearing down every thought that raises itself uh, self up against the knowledge of Christ. This is a battle of ideas as I've talked about so many times before and I need to recognize that that is the point. I am trying to win this battle and I'm winning this battle though not by being an angry person with stinging words that are purposefully offensive uh, but I am trying to persuade people and I'm trying to reason with people and I'm trying to answer their questions. Uh, Acts chapter 19 verse 8 same idea. He entered the synagogue and for three months, here it is, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, it's bold, right? It's unapologetic, and yet it is 
apologetic in that it is answering questions, the technical word of the word apologia, which is the technical sense of that. It is answering questions that people have when you try to persuade them, you try to reason with them about the gospel. Of course, I could quote First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Matter of fact, we should turn there. I'm way past the time, but go there with me real quick, and let's just end with this. We'll kind of come in for a landing with a real steep incline. Ready? Here we go. Verse 14. But even if you should, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Right? That's a good thing. God's favor there is on you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right? And that's going to happen. The the the, the struggle part. But don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as, as the Lord, as the King, and, and honor Him as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. There's our Greek word underlying that English text, apologia. It's the, I'm getting that charge off of me. They're, I'm trying to convince them. They've got questions. I'm trying to respond to that. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's assuming that there's gonna ask, they're going to ask those questions because I'm trying to make that point, right? Knowing nothing among them but Christ crucified. And yet do it with, here's the nice part, with gentleness and respect. That's the season with salt conversation. It says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, which they seem to do when we call them out on their sin and ask them to follow Christ and persuade them to believe the truth, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, because they'll see. You weren't mean. I mean, that's the bottom line. You, you weren't being a jerk. You were trying to persuade them to be Christians. Now, if the second Peter video leaves a big void in your life, which I, maybe I'm talking to nobody here, but um, can you do me a favor if you haven't watched this? Um, even if this shut down lasts longer and, and we don't have those daily uh, second Peters, here's what I'd love for you to watch. I'd love for you to watch the 2019 apologetic series that I preached on uh, Compass Night. We went through just a bunch of things that are very critically important for us to understand as Christians that we can answer the questions of our culture. You engage with people even on a walk in the business park or in Elisa Vallejo because you come to Compass Active. Someone's going to ask you about the reliability of the Bible. What's the answer? Is someone going to ask you about the deity of Christ? Well, how can he be God? They're going to say, isn't there every road lead to heaven? You're going to need an answer for those things. Well, we do that for an entire, what, 12 weeks, I think it was. You know, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Why are, are, are you know, kids born uh, you know, with birth defects? So those are the kinds of things we've got to be ready to answer. But we're not going to even have that need unless we are engaging in the kind of evangelism that is described in our text. So spiritual tune-up for us, a lot here, eight points. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Pray for open doors. Know that that's going to cost. It costs Paul, he's in prison. Make it clear as you ought to speak. You've got to know the gospel. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, right? You've got to strategically make those connections. They're never going to see your life if you're not connecting with non-Christians. And let your speech always be gracious. There's the nice part, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each person. Go out there and answer them. Defend the truth of the gospel. All right. Way too long, and I'm sorry, but let's pray. God, we need to tune up. We need all of our lives to be firing on all cylinders. We need to spiritually be strong. We know the church is made up of individuals, every brick in place, and that means we're going to need every part of the church to be strong. So, God, make us strong as we get into these kinds of spiritual disciplines in a more strategic and, and thoughtful and purposeful way with a greater resolve to be all that we've talked about here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.